This is Nita Erleen, and you are listening to the TRC Ministries podcast. Our vision is to see individuals fulfill their calling under the authority of the Church using the resources of the Kingdom of God. Who can and will be redeemed? And how did God carry out His plan of redemption? We will look at these questions in today's podcast on the means of redemption as we continue in our series, The Bible Message in a Nutshell. Here is Tori Bjorklund, President of TRC Ministries, teaching on the means of redemption at Caravan Fellowship. So today we'll talk about the means of redemption. So I'll read this section and then uh, we'll talk about the assertions and implications. It is the nature of man that he can be regenerated. God created him with this ability. Now, one thing that I want to point out, I, I talked about this last time, that some people assert that energy and that angels cannot be regenerated. And I don't know whether that's true or not. I shared my opinion. I mean, we don't have a lot of the angel story, but um, I, I shared more on that last time as to why I think that it's possible or, or that I don't see that as being a strong assertion in the Bible. But what is a strong assertion in the Bible is that man can be regenerated, and it's the nature of things that they can be. God created man with this ability. This ability does not exist by the will of man, but by the will or the design and intent of God. Yet it does not happen without the will of man. The means of redemption is the atonement provided by God in Jesus Christ, who carried out the plan perfectly. This act of grace brought redemption to all men. We talked about that last time. Yet not all are redeemed because the final act of redemption has been left to each individual. Now, I don't know if anybody's thought of that as an act of redemption, but the final act has been left to each individual. Only those who desire union with God and choose to receive the gift offered to restore that union will be redeemed for his possession. With our spirit comes a consciousness of ourselves. It is the nature of being a spiritual being. It is also our nature to be conscious of God. It is unavoidable as our consciousness of ourselves. In other words, the consciousness of God, us being conscious of God is as unavoidable as us being conscious of ourselves. From this consciousness, God works to bring us to the choice of unity. We have the choice of working with him or against him in this process. It is not the sin of Adam that condemns us before God, but our own stubbornness to his overtures of grace and life. It is the sin of Adam that brought about the reality of spiritual death and our physical mortality. It is the sin of our own rebellion that brings about condemnation to remain dead and wind up eventually in the final repository for all death. So I'm going to probably cover just the first half of that today. So it is the nature of man to be regenerated. What does regeneration mean? Anybody want to? offer an explanation, if not a definition. Remade. One of the myths of old is the idea of the phoenix bird. Anybody familiar with that myth at all? That bird that was 
killed and burned and arose from the ashes even more powerful. That's a regeneration. That's a, a myth of regeneration. The idea of being remade. And actually the word, there's a word that's used. In fact, I was just going to turn to Ezekiel. I'll come back to that. E Ezekiel 35, if you want to stick your finger in there, we'll come back to it. But Titus 3, 5 is one of the only places that actually uses the word that we translate regeneration in English. So Titus 3, 5 says this, He saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. So that, that word is used in one other place. I think it's in Corinthians when it talks about the day of redemption. It's, it's actually translated, but it's the same word there, which is interesting. That's only used twice. But we use that word to mean also what Jesus said about being born again. If you remember him talking to Nicodemus, that concept of being born again is remade. Another place you can think of is, uh, was it 2 Corinthians 5.17? A new creation, right? You remember that one? And one of my favorites is in Ezekiel. This is a promise from God. Chapter 36, verse 26. It says, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. That's a regeneration of the heart, if you will, the removal of the one of stone and of a remade heart, the one of flesh. Now, the concept there, by the way, we get hung up on these words flesh and spirit pretty easily, and this is not like walking according to the flesh. This is as opposed to a heart of stone meaning a soft heart as opposed to a hard heart. What does that mean to have a, a soft heart versus a hard heart? In general, what would that mean? If somebody is hard-hearted, what do you associate that with? Selfishness, emotionally dead, uncaring. So the idea really is that they are not moved by the things around them or by appeals for mercy or justice or grace or something like that. They're not moved by outward appeals, outside appeals. On the other hand, if you have a soft heart, the idea is that you're easily moved. You're easily persuaded to act on somebody else's behalf. And this, in this case, is God People can be hard-hearted towards God and not be moved by his overtures toward them. And he will give them a softer heart that will allow them to be moved by him. And then it goes on to say, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. I love this passage because it's it has dual meanings all throughout it, but it, it really is an explanation of what he intends to do through the redemption process. So, first of all, the assertion is that it's the nature of man that he can be regenerated, and we have this 
assertion that God's going to do this, and therefore it must be possible for him to be able to do that, and that God created man in a way that will allow this to be true. The other thing that I'm saying here is that this ability does not exist by the will of man, but by the design and intent of God. And I guess that would probably be fairly self-evident, but the idea here is not that it's excluding the will of man, but it, it exists first and foremost because God allowed it to exist and it's part of his plan that man would be redeemed, that man would be remade. James chapter 1 verse 18 says this, in the exercise of his will, this is God, he brought us forth by the word of truth so that we might be, as it were, the first fruits among his creatures. By the exercise of his will, he did this. So that's the, the first main assertion. The second one is that the means of redemption is the atonement. Now, we talked about this a lot in the previous sessions, um, but I want to point out is both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is contained in the atonement. It's not simply the death of Jesus Christ, but also the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the Bible's clear, if Christ had not been raised, we of all people are the most to be pitied. That's what Paul said. The means of redemption is the atonement provided by God in Jesus Christ. I'm going to have us read a couple of verses, three verses on that. Romans chapter 5. We looked at these before, but now we'll look at them in this context. Chapter 5, verse 10. This is the, in my opinion, one of the clearest statements about the role of both the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Chapter 5, verse 10, it says, If while we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. So it's interesting, and I, I, we talked about this in the past, but I'll mention it again. Reconciliation, and otherwise also referred to as justification. So justification is the means by which reconciliation came about. That is that God declaring us to be right before him, as well as now being reconciled to him, came through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. However, the unity with God, the life, the salvation that we receive, is not the same as the justification, which the salvation comes after having been reconciled, the salvation comes through his life and through his resurrection, his resurrected life. This was provided in Christ Jesus, um, as we pointed out there. First Peter, I just want to look at a couple of verses in First Peter chapter 1, chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You see, regeneration comes from that process, the whole process. 
the resurrection as well as the death of him. Uh, oftentimes, and this is one of my, I don't know if you call it a pet peeve or what, but it, it almost hurts it, that oftentimes the presentation of the gospel, as I heard it, is simply about the death of Christ, having been forgiven, and it's all about forgiveness. But that's only half of the story. Now, Jesus Christ would never have been resurrected had he not died on the cross. Okay, So it's an important part of it. We would not be able to live eternally in unity with God had we not been reconciled to him, which happened in that death. However, it is through the resurrection of Jesus that we have this regeneration, this being born again, this ability to be remade. So it's the death of Christ that we were buried, our sin was buried with him, but the life of Christ that we've received a new life to live with him. And that resurrection is is a really important part of the atonement. Uh, just jumping over a little bit, two chapters over, same book, First Peter, chapter 3. He brings it up again, verse 21. He references baptism here, and, and there's some, I think, confusion, and some people get all wrapped around the axle with this concept of baptism. He says, corresponding to that, baptism now saves you. Anybody here kind of have... I don't know if you ever remember the first time you read that or heard that. Baptism now saves you. It's like, wait a minute. I remember going through baptism classes, actually. I was raised Baptist. That's one thing they ought to get right, right? So they make sure they had baptism classes. And um, I remember going through those as a kid, and they made it a really strong point. You're not saved by baptism. And they're leaning against a teaching that you are saved by baptism, and uh, oftentimes through infant baptism. And I've known people that have been very concerned because their children had not been baptized um, because their husband would not allow it to happen, and they were worried for their children's sake. Well, they probably had reason to be worried for their children's sake, but it might not have been just because they didn't get them to the church and get them baptized. But here it says the baptism now saves you. And then here's what, I, what he goes on to say. Not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Who's doing the appealing? The one who wants a good conscience, right? This is an act of a person's will to align themselves with God. And that is available through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So I, I just wanted to kind of emphasize that because so oftentimes the emphasis in the gospel message is on forgiveness and the death of Christ. But the resurrection of Christ is the means of redemption. The resurrection of Christ is the means of redemption. So a sub-point under the means of redemption is the atonement, both the death and resurrection, is that Jesus carried out the plan perfectly. So in the previous section, I said, here's the plan that God gave, came up with. And he was going to come to earth as a man and live a life perfectly. And Jesus carried out this plan perfectly. It's interesting. If you have a, like electronic concordance, it's easier because there's a lot of words in there 
if you open up a concordance and you look for the word fulfilled um, or any derivatives of that, it's really interesting to me how many times, particularly in Matthew, it says that this happened or he did this in order that the prophecy would be fulfilled or this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. It's really incredible how many times you find that. You just do that search. And this was Jesus actually walking that walk and doing the things that had been predicted. And he was what? He was carrying out the will of his father that had been spoken previously through all the prophecies. And he actively involved himself in carrying out the plan of God, and he did it perfectly, as we find out in Hebrews. We'll turn there, Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. This is the plan, and this is, now the writer of Hebrews is speaking this in the active of him having done this, Jesus having done this. Since then, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same what the same what the same flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death that is the devil see he had to take on mortality so that he could die and in that process render powerless death render powerless actually the devil who has the power of death and he might deliver those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives for assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for sins, for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in all that which he suffered, he was is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. So what we have here is kind of the spelling out of that plan that God had, but not like it's going to happen, but that Jesus actually carried out this plan and he was tempted through suffering, but he was able to carry this out perfectly. And we find, of course, that he was perfect in uh, Hebrews 4, 15. He says, <clears throat> we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. He carried out fully the plan of God the Father. He fulfilled his will. You find in the Gospels many times Jesus saying, I've come to do his will, or I only do what I see my Father doing, or I only do what my Father tells me to do, or my words are not my own words, but of him who sent me. You remember all of those things? That's Jesus doing what God the Father has sent him to do and carrying it out to the T perfectly. Every jot and tittle was fulfilled. All right, the next assertion is one that we covered in fairly great length, so we won't go into it, but I think I'll, I'll bring it up again. This act of grace, the atonement, is this act of grace I'm talking about. This act of grace brought redemption to all men. And again, we went into that in great length. We probably don't need to do that again, but I do want to emphasize that the option for salvation is not limited. The atonement is not a limited 
I believe that the biblical account is that it was made available to all men, both forward-looking and backward-looking even. But not all are redeemed. So some people take that redemption to all men to mean that not only is it available, but it applies. It's actually that nobody will perish. And that's sometimes people referred to as universalists believe in universal salvation. I I don't believe that that's true. And so let's take a look at a few verses that, that says that not all men are redeemed. We'll just start in Matthew. We won't go through very many, but one of the ones that's very clear in Matthew chapter 13, a few of these, this is Jesus speaking. And the reason I chose these ones is because Sometimes we get the impression that, you know, if Jesus could have his way, nobody would perish. And that's true. There's kind of this idea sometimes that it's God the Father that wants them to perish, and Jesus doesn't want them to perish. But here what we have is Jesus talking about that there's going to be situations in which there's no other option. Because he can't have his way. They insist to have their way, and at some point, God says, okay. Um, Chapter 13 in Matthew, verse 42, towards the end here. So we have several things about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of heaven, many times in this chapter. And um, here we have this wheat and tares concept. And he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man. I'm in verse 37, just to set it up there. The field is the word. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And so then we jump down into, he says, the son of man, who is that? Jesus. He called himself the son of man. The son of man, in verse 41, will send forth his angels. And they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Who sanctioned that? Who gave the order that the angels obeyed? Jesus did. Jesus did that. If you jump to 25, Matthew 25... There's many more like that, by the way. In fact, do you remember the one, I, I, didn't, I didn't write this one down, but do you remember the parable where he said that there was a, a young prince who went off to receive a kingdom? Do you remember that? And he gave some talents to people and whatnot, and he came back. But there was, there was a, a delegation that went after him and said, we don't want you to rule over us. you remember that? When he came back, he said, bring those who would not have me rule over them and slay them in my presence. It's pretty harsh. But it is where things end up. Matthew 25, we see this again, the very end of that. Verse 31 is where this passage starts with, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Again, who is this? The Son of Man. Jesus. And all the nations will be gathered before him, and he'll separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. 
And then we go through this. You guys are familiar with it. We don't need to go through all of it. On verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into the eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, I made the assumption, assertion last time we talked that hell was created for the devil and not for man. And God has used that as a final repository for everything that will not be reconciled to him. And eventually it gets thrown into the second death, whatever that means. But all of this is taken away from God and from his presence. And that includes people. So not everybody is redeemed. Again, I mean, I picked two passages. You could find lots and lots of them. I chose these because it, it was Jesus speaking, and he was speaking about his decision. So those who perish, in my assertion here, is they do so by their own will and not the will of God. Now, I have several written down here. One of the ones, though, I want to point out, I didn't even write this one down, but I, I, don't, I don't want to pass it up. Act, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 1 says this. I just want to point it out. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who suppress the truth with their unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. This is that consciousness of God, which we'll talk about another time. This is the evidence of God that it comes to the individuals, to each individual, and they push it out. They try to suppress it. It's like swimming upstream. And that is what God holds against men. Individuals, men and women. John 5.43. Now, there's a lot in the beginning of John. You remember that? They, they would not receive him. He came to his own, but they would not receive him. This, again, is Jesus speaking. He said, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another shall come in his own name, you will receive him. This is Jesus speaking to, I think, the, actually the Pharisees here. But he's looking to be received. And the problem that God has, and that Jesus has, is those who refuse to allow him to rule over them. Those who refuse to allow him to take his rightful place of leadership. Now, what do you, what do you call that? when somebody opposes the rightful ruler, a rebellion, treason. There's different words for that, but you can't operate with that in the kingdom. I want to look at a couple more here. 1 Timothy 2.4, and this is Paul talking about God. Uh, verse 3, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is his desire. So if this is his desire, why doesn't this happen? Because he allows man to make the decision as to whether or not he would. And this is where we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 10. Now this is that great falling away 
And it's talking about that, oh, say verse 8, we'll go back to that. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring an end by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders. And verse 10, and with all deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. They did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That's just simply saying another way of saying repressing the truth, rejecting the truth, repressing the truth and unrighteousness. This is what is on man. This is what is God has against man. This is why the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Uh, let's do one more. Second Peter 3. We were just there. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Oh, no, we were in 1 Peter, weren't we? Sorry. This is, talks again about the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. There's a point in Revelation where, it's, where Jesus is talking. He says, I gave them time to repent, but they would not. This is the example of God giving people time to repent, waiting for them to repent, making sure they have the opportunity to repent. It's not God's will that any should perish. However, it is God's will not to overcome the will of man in their rebellion, but to appeal to them and to see if they will respond accordingly. The last part of this, I'll quit with this. Not all are redeemed. Those who perish do so by their own will and not the will of God. The last part, those who choose to receive the gift will be redeemed. And this is, again, John chapter 1. I mentioned this verse, I think, a few minutes ago, where it talks a lot of, in several places in the beginning of John Chapter 1, verse 12 is an example. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of the blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. This is that regeneration again. But what's the beginning of that? Now, if you go back far enough, you will say the beginning is God's will that man can be redeemed, right? That it's in the nature of things that just like our body is able to be healed, our spirit can be regenerated. That was God's plan. But at, there comes a point at which now God has left it to man to receive it. That's our role. We couldn't have made it happen. We couldn't do anything had we wanted to make it happen. God has done all of that, but at some point, he relies upon us to receive what grace he has to offer and the mercy that he has to offer us. There's not a bright line of demarcation between God's will in our regeneration and our will in our regeneration, but it is a very bright line between passivity and activity 
God expects us to be active in it and not passive in it and to participate. And that doesn't mean that we do it, do all of it. It means that God does it with our cooperation and we actually have the ability to resist God, not because we're so strong, but because God has chosen for that to be the means by which he brings redemption. And the reason for that is because it would invalidate the purpose of man should God overcome man's will. If he removed the will of man, man would no longer be in his image. It would invalidate the purpose for creating man in the first place. We would have no virtue in choosing God because we wouldn't choose. I mean, I think about, for example, you drive in these mountainous roads and you see the sign that says, you know, beware of rocks or beware of falling rocks or something like that. Watch for falling rocks. Why? Because rocks are evil? Nobody thinks rocks are evil. Nobody thinks gravity is evil. <laughs> you know, but rocks crush cars when they roll over them. Big rocks. And that kills people. And there's no accountability for a rock because it has no will in the matter. And the rocks that stay up on the cliff, we don't say, wow, look at those virtuous rocks sitting up there who refuse to come down and crush people. We don't even think in those terms. What we do recognize is that if a man chooses to kill somebody and crush somebody or push a rock off a ledge to try to crush a car, that that is evil. Why? Because they have their will involved. And if, on the other hand, a man sees a rock coming and he does what he can and loses his life in the process trying to divert that from causing injury on somebody, we think, what a virtuous act that was. Because will is involved. In both cases, if somebody dies, they die with or without somebody's will involved, it's still a tragedy that they die, but it's not an evil unless there's another will involved. I'll leave it there, and we'll talk a little more about the consciousness of ourselves and our consciousness of God. And that is, by the way, the process that God then uses to bring us, to draw us to himself. And he's actively involved in every individual to bring them to himself. Let me pray. God, thank you so much that you have reached out to us that you have provided a means of redemption and that you allow us to choose to be redeemed, to, to be reconciled to you, but also that you allow us to choose not to. And I imagine that that's a heartrending thing for you and that happens. And I just thank you that you're the type of God that is hurt by that and who desires for all to come to repentance. Help us to take that same view towards our fellow man and want to see everybody enter into a right relationship reconciliation with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed the podcast and want to hear more messages by Tori Bjorklund, make sure to subscribe. And for more information on TRC Ministries or to contact us, 
visit our website at www.regenerationcenter.org.